0: Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title Seventeen. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay.
1: And I'm Nick.
0: And this is our review of Jaws, starring Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Murray Hamilton, and Lorraine Gary. Directed by Steven Spielberg, released in 1975 on a budget of $9 million, grossed over $470 million in its box office run. If you do the adjust for inflation number on that, it's over $2 billion and still ranks it in the top 10 of all-time grossing films. It's long since fallen out of that, but uh, for a long time, this was the biggest grossing movie of all time. Well, I should say for two years till Star Wars came around. But this movie really started the summer movie craze, and so we figured what a better way to kick off January uh, than to talk about Jaws. And so if folks have listened to our other podcasts like Halloween or the Star Wars series, they've heard me say that Jaws is my favorite film, and I lump it in there with the original Halloween and, and star Wars and new hope. But this one's always been number one for me. I mean, I grew up watching this. It's the first DVD I ever owned. One of the first VHS I ever purchased myself, seen it many, many times and have read the book and everything. So Nick, what about you though, with jaws? I mean, was this a uh, go-to for you growing up?
1: Um, the first one was not, I, I, I mean, you got to remember when I, you know, growing up, you know, I was just kind of the same as you. I mean, DVDs really weren't available and everything was based upon what you could tape off of HBO or NBC, you know, Saturday night movies. So, um, to me, I kind of grew up with jaws two. That was kind of my go-to movie. I, I remember seeing like bits and pieces of jaws, the original throughout my childhood, but I really didn't get a chance to sit down and watch it from beginning to end until I was probably into my probably early twenties, actually.
0: Oh wow! Okay, I, you know, I will say this: I think a lot of the tropes of the Jaws series, most people will remember from Jaws two, uh, kind of like the way when people think of Rocky, they really think about Rocky three. You know, if if you boil it down, uh, and maybe a little Rocky four, but you know the originals were different things. The thing about the Jaws movies, to me, man, is that they have always fascinated me as a four part series because i think each one of them is a different genre uh and and we'll talk about those as we get to them i'm not going to spill all that out right now but i do think each of them kind of tries to do a a different thing with basically the same idea a shark attacking people
1: Kind of like the Alien series, so to speak.
0: Sorta, yeah. Some of the same stuff, yeah. Some of very similar. We can probably even make some good comparisons. I know that was a big one for you, and we did that a few years ago now. But yeah, very similar in the way that they work. But like I said, you know, I read the book on this one, man. I I saw this at a very young age on television on cable. That's where I really grew up watching it. It was years until I saw the, I guess the the full version without commercials in it. Like I can even remember where the commercial breaks happened. Uh, from the ABC Saturday Night Movie or whatever, Sunday Night Movie, that we taped it off of on the VHS. But yeah, this movie, though, you know, anytime we we step into one of these roles where we're going to review something that is universally loved, the big question I always have to say is, what can we talk about here and what holds up over time? I mean, this movie is, you know, as of recording this, is 41 years old. And that is a that is a very long time. I mean, it's not the oldest thing we've ever reviewed, but it's certainly right up there.
1: Yeah, in fact, we really don't have anything really to say about this movie that hasn't been said. So, good cast, everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I think the thing to do here is to do kind of like what we do with Blade Runner. Is rather than talking through it bit by bit, is to talk about the characters, what we like about them, what makes it work. Talk about the shark and the just the whole premise of it and then what makes this movie you know one of the one of the seminal classics and it's definitely one of spielberg's big ones i mean when he goes when he goes from this life he's going to be remembered for a lot of things and i happen to think on his tombstone are going to be things like schindler's list is definitely going to be up there for him and i think jaws is going to be the one of the ones that people remember him for it's it's not his first film but it was the the big one it's the one that made him
1: Yeah, I'd say it'd probably be in his top five for what he's going to be remembered for. And actually, I wonder even, you know, we kind of say that as like movie buffs, so to speak, but I wonder if just even talking to the general public, how many of them even know that the guy behind E.T. and Indiana Jones and, you know, Spielberg basically is that, was he behind Jaws? I got a feeling that that's not as you know I'm not going to say it's not well known but I don't think it's going to be as well known as you would expect it to be
0: I would bet if we were to like poll our younger listeners that this would not be one of the first things they remember him for because again it's it's so old I mean this movie's older than me and I'm the oldest person yeah. on this podcast and I mean really it this movie's been around longer than uh, you know some of our compatriots on this show
1: yeah and uh, I I don't think it really has anything to do with the age of it. I just think it has to do with the fact that there's multiple sequels to it. And really, I mean, you look at like a lot of the other stuff that Spielberg's done, what other ones have really spawned sequels, let alone sequels. He was not a part of, I really want to right. think of, you know, one movie franchise and it would be Jurassic park. And, you know, he's been involved with half of them and I think he was producer and at least the other two. So I think it's just that this one's kind of transformed into its own thing. And even though it's got lots of Spielberg qualities and, you know, general stuff that you're going to kind of equate to from the director to his films is it's kind of the beginning of it, you know, kind of that Spielbergian feel where he, I don't think it really like, you know, the movies that I always say, like have the most Spielbergian feel to it is like movies like E.T. and, you know, kind of movies like in the 80s, early 90s, that kind of have that feeling to them. I mean, even some of his lesser works like Always or, you know, stuff like that. Still have that Spielbergian feel where I think this was kind of the beginning of it.
0: I think the thing about this movie that is so neat and so tied to Spielberg is he was so young when they gave him this role. I mean, this was a chance the studio took on him and Zanuck and Brown, the producers here really were out on a limb with him. I mean, th- this thing went over budget. It went over time and you know, they were worried about getting something out there uh, to have in theaters. I mean, they had a poster out there and they had to, they almost had to hornswoggle theaters to get people to see it, kind of the way that Star Wars got seen was that if you wanted to show this other thing, you got to show this thing. And the thing was, is that this movie, the minute the public got a hold of it, it just exploded. I mean, what a great idea too. And, and you have to put a lot of that on Peter Benchley, the author. I mean, he's written a lot of books and I've read several of his his books. I shouldn't say several. I've read like three of them, Uh, but I've read a lot of his work and I know this haunted him for years because he felt responsible for a lot of shark death uh, that was, uh, not necessary. And, you know, the old adage now is that there's some films that you can never remake. And Jaws is one that probably you can't anymore because we just know so much more about sharks. Now. I mean, the, the average Joe public knows more about sharks now than anybody did in 1975. There was no shark week. There wasn't any of that. There was so no MythBusters. There was none of that kind of stuff to educate us all on it. And eventually just had a, a basic trashy novel idea of what if a, you know, a shark, uh, swam up, he read a story about a shark that got off of a Jersey coast and spent 12 days sort of hanging around the food source and scaring the dickens out of everybody. And he thought, well, what if a great white got out there? What would that be like? And so he cobbled together a little bit of an idea and threw a book out. And have you ever read the book? I mean, it is is the trashy beach read that it sells itself as.
1: I've never read it. And, you know, bringing up Peter Benchley, it's uh, kind of funny because I know that he wrote Joe Jaws, but even kind of before I kind of realized that I always kind of knew him for other works and not really great works. I don't think he's a very good author. I think he's got some good ideas, but I really think that he'd probably be more of the guy who writes like a, you know, maybe like a 20 page outline and then gives it to someone who can actually <laughs> fill it in because like I've read books like, um, you know, like stuff like The Beast and stuff like that. I remember I read that in like high school or middle school when that came out, or The Island, or you know, what was the other one? It was like White Creature, Shark or something. White yeah, Creature. Yeah, yeah, Creature. Just not good stuff. No, and-
0: I, I am looking at a copy of Beast on my bookshelf as we speak. By the way, I, I own that. I bought that for uh, twenty five cents from the local Goodwill, uh, but I've read it before, so I'm I'm right there with you. He's he's yeah. a good idea, but execution sometimes falls apart
1: well it kind of reminded me of that like south park episode where like you have cartman he's like at the robot and like he's a show he's like shouting out all these like stupid ideas for like the hollywood execs to write down and that's kind of like what i think like he probably should have been like is like how about we do a great white shark and it's outside the atlantic coast at a beach town and then like then the next one we'll do is a giant squid kind of doing the same thing i mean it's like kind of like but like substitute that for like adam sandler which was in the south park episode but uh yeah it's just yeah it's stuff like you know remember i don't know if you've ever seen the beach i mean not the beach the beast the beast on abc that two-part series uh i own the dvd of it so yes
0: why would you own that dvd
1: (laughs) man that is a bad movie it's got the guy from csi in it right yes
0: that that well that's exactly why william peterson and i it you know we talked about before we were I've reviewed films sometimes and i'll I'll own them and I'll go back and watch them again, expecting them to ultimately get better and i there's something about that one that like if it were trimmed down into a two hour movie, it would probably work, but as a mini series it's it's pretty bad, and as a book, it's even worse,
1: yeah I, uh that guy from csi i mean why did they? why did they try to put him stuff like that he's not an action star it's, he's a he, he's, he's an a, every
0: man he isn't every man he could be you he could be just some regular he, schmo next door he's
1: not me jay trust me no he's not you can out <laughs> him that's
0: for sure but you know here's the thing about about benchley's work and i will say this about the original jaws yes it is a trashy novel but it's a page turner and the thing is is that Zanik and Brown read a review of it and then picked up the book and read it and they were like, holy cow, this could be a good movie. And they realized that there was like a whole third of it they didn't need. Like the whole affair subplot between Hooper and Brody's wife. They're like, forget that. And the, and, whole,
1: and the mafia. Yeah, the, the mob mafia subplot.
0: And I, and, and I get why they would cut that. And really, you can thank Spielberg and Carl Gottlieb, the guy that's ultimately credited for writing it. There are probably a dozen people that wrote on this movie. But Spielberg was the one that really boiled it into, this is about three men against the shark. And it's really about this police chief. Like he really zeroed in on Brody as the, as the central character. If you read the book, it's pretty clear Brody's the central character, but there's a lot of time spent with the other people, particularly Quint. You get a lot more Quint in the book than you do the movie. And I think what Spielberg realized, and we'll talk about this as we get into it, is that's a character you need to pepper in, but it can't, if that's the lead foot, it's going to turn the audience off. And so, Um, Again, lots of stuff we can get into here, but why don't we do the plot summary and then we'll talk about the movie. The New England tourist town of Amity Island is beset by the arrival of a great white shark. While Chief of Police Martin Brody wants to close the beaches, the mayor keeps them open until a young boy is killed by the superfish. Brody, along with oceanographer and shark expert Matt Hooper, team up with a local fisherman, Quint, to hunt down the shark. They engage the beast in several battles at sea until the shark attacks their boat, the orca, killing Quint and causing it to sink. In the last moment of desperation, Brody throws a pressurized air tank at the shark and then shoots the tank, causing it to explode and dispatching with the attacking fish. Brody and Hooper swim back to shore as the tide comes in and Amity's nightmare ends. That's the quick summary of Jaws. It actually is a pretty simple story. It's Big Shark shows up outside of a ritzy, rich New England summer town and... The police chief wants to close the beaches and the mayor's got to keep the bottom line going. And then all hell breaks loose. And, and then we go on a seafaring adventure. And that's kind of, that's kind of the whole movie. I mean, it's broken into weird acts that way because half the movie is them at sea, but that's really the third act. I mean, it's kind of strange how long that goes on.
1: I mean, the plot structure is, I mean, I'm glad that they cut out all that stuff in there, like we were talking about earlier with like the mafia and the stupid affair and everything like that. It's just like. Oh,
0: that's graphic, takes- by the way, in the novel. I mean, it is like some penthouse stuff. Like, it is really, like, Benchley is a sicko. So, I mean, there was it, there's lots of, like, descriptions that you don't need, especially if you put the faces of Richard Dreyfuss and Lorraine Gary on those characters. In the book, they're written differently, so you kind of see it. The, just imagine those two, like, hooking up in a seedy back, you know, seat behind the movie theater kind of thing. It's, I mean, it's gross, man.
1: A lot of teeth, I'd imagine. Um...
0: <laughs> kind of like the shark.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, Lorraine <laughs> Gary's kind of got a I you don't know, she's ne- never mind. I'm not even gonna get into it. Anyways, um but yeah, I mean the structure of this movie is very much like you know, it it's it, it is like structured just like a horror movie or your standard you know, monster movie where it's you got the beginning aspect where it's like slowly, you know, kind of come out, and the second part is you got the heroes coming together, and then the third part is the heroes taking it to the monster. And, you know, I just I I've the first thing I always can say about jaws is it's just, it's structured so well it is. I mean, just from that, the, the first scene, just ramping up the tension and just, I mean that the beginning scene there where you got the girl, you know, you got the girl going skinny dipping out in the ocean and just that entire scene just sets the whole mood for the movie. And it is so damn good. And I, I know I, very even curious i mean i didn't really i haven't really read that much like behind the scenes stuff with this movie but just even how they did that with her is this something kind of like an exorcist where they kind of put like a rope on a couple ropes on her and was yeah, kind of like yeah. pulling her back and forth there, there's she got back problems now yeah,
0: i don't know about now but uh i don't even know if she's still with us anymore actually a season back when they it might be uh, passed on but th- there's a great doc that's on i think like the 25th anniversary and then it gets repeated on the 30th and the 35th and etc uh, on the making of jaws and you, you can see it and i do recommend people watch it uh but yeah they basically had uh, her like in the bottom part of a uh, of a diver suit and they had a set of ropes uh on some pulleys on the the shore and they were just pulling her back and forth between stuff and i think it's spielberg that actually pulls her under one time to kind of scare her and he does it sort of at a random time and it, that's a genuine sort of shock on her face uh, when you see it so no that i mean that's great this is one thing too is you know shark movies nowadays are relegated to like the sci-fi channel, right? They just and they're just cheese effects, right? This is all practical, and the you know the big story about this movie is they couldn't get the freaking shark to work. They got the effects guy who had done you know 80,000 Leagues Under the Sea and and all that kind of stuff, and they were trying to you know make this monster, and they every time they put it out in the ocean, it sank. And the, you know, the Atlantic Ocean just beat the crap out of all the hydraulics in it and they, they could never get it to work. So they had to come up with other ways to show the shark. And the, the two things that really sell it to me, um, and I feel like this film and Halloween have this so much in common, is that it's the point of view of the killer. You get the point of view of the shark. It is a monster movie, an adventure tale, if you will. And you get the incredible, iconic score that, da da you know, that is the shark music from Jaws, just like, you know, the piano and the five, four time is Halloween, right? Like the, those things without those two elements, neither of those movies is scary, nor do they work. But in this scene, particularly with Chrissy, cause she's just sort of like, you know, wading out in the water, there's the naked girl. And then all of a sudden you just see this camera drifting up toward her and you hear that music getting a little bit faster and a little bit faster. And that's the shark going in for the kill. And it's uh man, I, the score in this, uh, along with the visuals, totally sells the tension. And you said it, I mean, it, it really does keep things moving right along. I waste no time getting right into it.
1: Yeah, and definitely I think it's, it's it's a great point too with like the uh, point of view of the shark. I mean, it's got its own theme song which, you know, something like you said, you've seen stuff in like Halloween, he has that jason has that they all have their theme song they always got the the cue for the audience to let you know that something's coming and it's such a such a simple thing to do you figure where you just like you kind of start hitting that note and what you do is you start getting the audience to really start kind of like you know, guessing where it is because you know it's coming. And you can also play tricks with the audience, too, with that, that, which I don't think they do too much in this one. I think in the sequels and they kind of start, you know, fooled you with it. But it's just, it's so great. And, you know, this opening scene, I think, is one of the, God, you know, it's just one of these quintessential scenes in any movie where you put this on and everybody knows what movie this is from there's no oh, oh, yeah. and you don't and the thing too is you don't even have to it does and, and what, it, what it says a lot about though is there's no star the, the stars aren't in the scene and the monster even though it's there it's not there so it right. just like i said it just speaks of volumes for the scene it's just it's a great way to start off the movie
0: it is and and you talk about themes introducing the villain like think about just a few years later when Star Wars opens, and when it really opens, and the Empire blasts the door open on Leia's ship, what do you hear? You hear Darth Vader's music, and he walks through the smoke. It's the same thing. I mean, it's, it gets repeated so many times, and I, I, I think Jaws is one of the, the films that is credited and rightfully so for starting that and giving you not only the point of view of the of the you know the antagonist, but also giving it an, an iconic bump, something that set the audience in motion. And they do play with us on that. There's the, you know, there's two kids swimming around with the, the uh, fin for a little while. And they play the music a little bit behind it and they tease you on it. You're like, Oh, is that them? And it's not, it's just, you know, that kid's looking Mm -hmm. at that M one Garand, which he's probably scared the shit out of him in the water there. But um, I, I do love this open though, because you're right. It doesn't have any of our stars in it. And we actually won't meet them until the very next morning. That's when we meet our lead character. And, I got to tell you, man, Roy Scheider is one of my favorite character actors from the 70s and the 80s. I would watch stuff with him in it just because he was the guy from Jaws. Like Blue Thunder, which is a piece of garbage, but maybe we'll do that one someday. And I even watched like Sequest DSV because he was in it. I watched 2010. I hadn't even seen 2001, and I watched 2010 because he was in it. had no idea what the hell was going on. But I would watch Roy Scheider stuff because to me, he was the perfect what I thought he he looked like a guy that could be a really good police officer and a cop because he didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Stallone or anybody. He looked like, you know, some of my dad's friends, just these wiry guys that um, could handle themselves and were resourceful. And I think his performance as this, in a lot of ways, scared man, middle-aged man thrown in this extraordinary situation is, really what carries so much of the drama of this movie because he hates the water he doesn't care about living on the island but he moved his family there because it was a good paying gig and it was out of the city and 1970s new york not exactly a place you want to hang out
1: yeah yeah i mean Roy is funny you bring you know we obviously got to bring up roy Scheider, but it's like i don't know him from anything else i know you're talking you just you know dropped a bunch of movies i knew of like Sequest DSV. I think I watched one where they fought against uh, Neptune in the water. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't a very good show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was on quite a bit, though. It It was kind of like
0: like low-rent Star Trek, but underwater. I mean, that's kind of how it was done.
1: Man, a ton of that in the '90s, but yeah, that's all I know him from. The only thing I know, and this is going to be very offensive, I know him from Jaws and the fact that the Oscars didn't say anything about him when he died. Yes, yeah, that's like it, the only two things I really know about
0: him. Yeah, which which was a snub. Uh, no, but I mean, like if you've ever seen like The French Connection, if you go back and watch any of that stuff, he was in that. He played opposite okay. of, of Gene Hackman. He was one of those guys. I mean, he was one of the the '70s character actors, and he heard about them talking about this movie and the the climactic scene it's in the book too and it's in the movie here is where the shark jumps on the boat and breaks it in half and he overheard somebody talking about that at the Hollywood party he said that is insane and then he told his agent I gotta do that (laughs) like it sounds like a blast and then he became you know the the lead character for two of these films Uh, but again Brody is so cool here because we we meet him and he's just kind of waking up and he's like I mean, I, and I used to think, like, when my dad would wake up in the mornings, he would sort of just sit on the side of the bed and put his hands in his head for, or his head in his hands for a second and just kind of stare at the floor, and I used to think, what an odd thing to do, and I see Shider do it, and now as I'm, you know, hitting my 40s, I do that every morning, and I'm like, I totally understand why you do that. Because I was going to,
1: I was going to bring that up about him, it's just like, you know, yeah, he's, you know, he's the cop, he's the hero, but he is like one of the, you know, he he's the perfect example of the hero that doesn't want to be a hero. Right. And and that, that's him. I mean, he the, playing the police chief is not something that's glory for him or anything like that. It's just a job. And you can tell just from the opening scenes as it's a job that he does cuz it pays the bills and that's all he cares about. He doesn't really I I don't, you know, it, with him it's just something where I think he's kind of grown kind of apathetic to it over the years and I think he's even become apathetic as, you know, A father and a husband and as a man, I mean, you see it even later in the movie, he's kind of a kind of a pushover when it comes to, you know, you got guys like Quentin Hooper that we later see in the movies and, you know, him being the police chief, you think like, oh, he's going to be the guy in charge where even he's kind of getting pushed around by his wife. He's, and so, yeah, he's he is very I mean, down he, the
0: middle. Yeah,
1: he he is. And I think he he is a really even though he is the cop, he is kind of the audience into the movie, because in a way we're all looking for, you know, within the movie, we're all looking for like these experts in this movie to kind of like tell us what's going on or what's going to be done. And he's kind of the same way. You know, you're listening to Hooper, you're listening to Quimp, but we'll get more into that later.
0: Yeah. The thing about him is that it's neat. And they do drop lines about it is that this is his first summer in Amity. Like he moved the they bought the house, you know, in the. In the fall, they moved there in the wintertime, and this they've, they've gone through the spring. This is their first summer in Amity, so they have no idea what it's really like. You have a sense that they probably had been there before. I mean, a town like that, I mean, it's supposed to be like Martha's Vineyard or the Hamptons or any of that. He probably got recruited through somebody to, to come out there and do that. But he had been a cop in New York City, and he was used to all that noise. And he wakes up, and all he hears are like seagulls and You know, I have friends that have lived in big cities their whole life and stuff like that. And then they move to quieter places and they like have no idea how to handle it because the noise isn't right for them. And I love how sort of just disoriented he is in the mornings. And there's this great scene early on with, you know, one of his kids is playing outside. He cuts his hand or whatever, and mom is working on it. And they're in the background. Mom and the kid are like washing it off and you can hear the dialogue. But the front shot is Brody on the the hotline, the police phone, right? Remember when like you had two phone lines at a house? By the way, God, you only have one now. But uh, I remember policemen that had two lines at their house, and he's if you if you watch that scene, you can catch yourself sort of paying attention to Lorraine Gary and the kid in the back. But if you do, you're actually missing the best part. You you hear Scheider giving this whole performance over the phone. You never hear what's on the other end of the receiver. But he's having this whole conversation about, well, do you think it was a bow? I mean, like he's telling you great exposition there. And I thought that was such a well-put-together scene for such a young director again. It's something Spielberg Spielberg would do a lot. Yeah.
1: Spielberg does that a lot. I mean, what comes to mind is like Jurassic Park. Is, Is there scenes like, especially in the beginning of it, where you got four characters, two of which are talking to each other, and you know then the other two are talking to each other and each one's kind of you can you can like kind of come in and out of the conversations on both of them but they're both going on equally at the same time and sometimes it can get a little bit annoying but it's kind of cool like when you especially when you rewatch a lot of these movies to kind of pick a different one and to kind of yeah. like learn something new I mean think of what was the like I forget who it was in Jurassic Park but anyway but I, yeah that's when he did it. I think it was also a few times in like the Indiana Jones movies where it's kind of similar items that went on
0: well, there's the one specifically in Jurassic Park that I remember is where I think Muldoon and the Hunter and Sam Neill are having a conversation, and at the same time, Goldblum and Laura Dern and somebody else are having a conversation, and uh, uh, Attenborough, Richard Attenborough over there having a con- not Richard Attenborough, uh, who, who's the guy? The who's the old man in Jurassic Park?
1: Just call it the guy who played Santa Claus and Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah.
0: And then, and then then you have the John Hammond character over there having that same conversation. Like, so, yes, same thing. You're right. And I, you know what? Until you said that, I didn't realize how many times Spielberg does that. But in my head now, I'm like ticking off all these different times when he's had the foreground and the background conversation in the same scene. And you see it here and it's like, oh, the genesis of it. And it's, it's neat though. It's, it's such a good scene because again, it introduces you to Brody and you kind of get, that he's a little in over his head. Like he's trying to get down to where the the whole thing goes down. Right. And so he gets, yeah. he gets to the beach and he, you know, he finds he's talking to the guy and his deputy finds the remains and he's like, Holy cow, this is a mess. And the next thing we see from him, like he's running around town, trying to get beach clothes signs made. He's trying to do this. Somebody's talking to him about, people karate chopping his damn fence apart. And I mean, he's, you know, he's like, ah, oh, I got too much of this crap to deal with today. And I just had a girl eaten by a shark, you know, and he's, he's freaking out a little bit and I can appreciate that though. Cause there's times like at work that I, I feel like I'm pretty good at balancing a lot of stuff, but there's times I'm like, holy cow, there's like way too much noise going on. Can I just concentrate on one problem at a time? And yeah. you, it makes you feel for him though, is that you realize he's really good at what he does, but he's not superhuman.
1: Yeah, I, I I try to put a backstory on him, and you know, like I know that he was kind of a he was in a city cop or a city police officer, and I always envisioned that he just you know he got passed up for a promotion or mm-hmm. something very bad happened one day, and he essentially was just looking in the paper and saw a classified ad for this job, gave him a call and got it, you know what I mean, and then he ended up going yeah. over here, and I think that you know when. Being in this, I thought he's going to kind of be like almost like Doc Hollywood in a way, where it's going to be, yeah, you know, I'm sure you've seen that, right? Oh, that yeah. Movie. Not, yeah, not, not, is it Doc Hollywood the movie? Is that what's called? you talking about the one yeah. with, yeah, with, Fox? My, with yeah, 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 that they remade with cars, where it's yeah. like, yeah, the big city guy going to the country because he just wants a more quiet life and everything like that. And I think that's kind of his motif is like, oh, you know, he's going to be dealing with probably some, you know, punk ass kids in the summer, but for most of the time it's going to be pretty quiet. But when, like, all suddenly he goes out to the beach and he sees this, it's kind of like his city cop instincts start kicking in where he's starting to take charge and starting to do all this stuff. But at the same time, he's still got a lot of this other stupid, mundane stuff that, you know, that he's kind of signed up for. And so it's, you can see it just kind of like mixing in his head a little bit and kind of frustrating him because it's like, don't you guys realize there's something a lot more important going on right now? I can't be handling all this other stuff. And it's just, and it's, you can feel for him in a way too that because he's just so understaffed. Oh, I think yeah. it's only him and one other deputy. As far as that's the entire police force for the island, where they bring on some, you know, summer recruits or whatever, you know, during the summer when it gets busier. But it's like, yeah, you could kind of tell that, you know, he probably bit off a little bit more than he, you know, thought was going to be in this job.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I'm sure nobody advertised like, oh, and by the way, we attract great white sharks. I mean, you know, they they don't even they're so oblivious to their own ecosystem around that well, island. Well, doesn't it kind
1: of remind you? You ever see the movie Hot Fuzz? Yes, yes. Yeah, It just, it got so much, you know, like I think Hot Fuzz kind of took a little bit of that where it's just like, oh, oh yeah. we're, we're, we're quiet town. Nothing like this ever happens. I mean, the mayor in there is totally played by, uh, you know, the, uh, Timothy Dalton in yes. Hot Fuzz where it's just like, you know, oh, you know, we got to worry about the business and everything here. It's fine. It's fine. It was just an accident. <laughs> Yeah, I, know, I just I think it's great, especially when the uh when when the mayor shows up. Man, he is just he's so slimy, but <laughs> in a way though, I mean, it's like you can kind of un- you understand where he's coming from because. He's got mouths to feed. I mean, he he, he sits there and he does what Brody wants him to do at this point. Because at this point, Brody's saying it's a shark and they got to close the beaches so they can do some investigations, possibly hire someone or go out there and kill the shark. And the mayor's just kind of like, calm down a little bit. You know, he's kind of, you know, Officer Bar Bar Brady, you know, take it easy, nothing to see here. Look
0: at what the mayor does. Like, he gets the town reporter, which is played by the screenwriter, by the way. That was a nice nod. He gets the, the medical examiner who had given Brody the... To, you know, cause of death earlier in the day. And and they all kind of gang up on him on that ferry ride. And they're like, hey, look, you just need to kind of chill out. Cause like, if you say, you know, Barracuda, everybody's like, whatever you say shark and everybody freaks out. And we can't handle that. The 4th of July saves our butt for the year. We have to have the summer dollars. And, you know, I never lived in like a pure tourist town or anything like that, but I know people that do. And like, they, they talk about, disaster like weather and other things that come through and it just wrecks them for the year you know like they they have such a hard time with it the good thing about growing up in the south is that you're not as dependent on the weather like it's pretty much always nice to go to the beach so you just you can go but in new england you have about three months and that's it and then it gets seriously cold you know you're from the midwest you have what three months of summer and then it gets freaking cold you know back in wisconsin so
1: cold cold's cold's a relative term it could
0: could be it could be but you know what the weather changes to an extent where you're not out playing golf you know like um well
1: i will say one year we did golf all 12 months of the year (laughs) and yes we did golf in the snow
0: (laughs) i can totally see that Uh, but the point is that that's
1: why they make yellow balls
0: the point is is that you get the mayor's motivation and th- that is kind of a neat subplot in the movie i always thought if they ever did bother to try to remake this that's probably a good subplot to include is that the mob is like leaning on him to help him keep the money laundering scheme going but I like, get really, how much of is here.
1: the mob really going to be concerned about like amity <laughs> was, island or something you think you know come on you got like drugs and you got alcohol and you got prostitutes and what, what are they doing like financing a surf shop and well enemy, no you, you,
0: you got ways of money launder money and look this was post godfather and all that i'm sure eventually was just like yeah but, I'll what, mob, uh, but, it, you know? but
1: fill this but fill this in though okay like the mobs giving who money
0: right the mayor no, they they are keeping the town businesses afloat because they So they're get, their yeah, money, so they're giving
1: like the surf shops and right. their the, money the seafood keeps, places, they're yeah. giving them
0: money to stay afloat. They keep them to stay afloat and it launders their money because then they get the kickback off of the uh, the revenue. That's the the thing. So, like, the mayor, like, kills himself or gets killed or disappears in the book. Like, you, it's never really sure what happens to him. You get the idea that he swims with the fishes, you know, at the end of it or whatever. But Oh, you, see, that that, that would have
1: been a cool scene, though. It could have like, yeah. taken care of itself where it's like, hey, we got to go take this mayor out to the sea. And they're going to, like, you know, throw him overboard. And all of a sudden, the shark comes and kills them all. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, I, the shark's kind of the hero. It took care let's, of the mob. See,
0: yeah, but uh, thankfully that doesn't happen in the book. And it doesn't happen in this movie because then the movie is a sci-fi movie. That's, and you know what in one of the sequels that probably is something that could have happened. come but on I'd the shark could have one. been
1: played by kevin costner he's you no know, he's the <laughs> untouchable shark
0: <laughs> i don't think he was doing much work at this point but
1: he's not doing much work now so <laughs> it would even doubt
0: <laughs> so brody though again is is our central characters our hero and we'll talk about the rest of his arc here as we get into the movie but i, I want to move on to a couple of the other characters let's talk about quentin hooper and i think we we need to talk about him in reverse order hooper Richard Dreyfuss shows up and really he is the analog for Steven Spielberg. They were the same age at the time. He looked almost exactly like him at the time. I mean, and it is kind of, we bring aboard the young hotshot expert that knows everything That's he's, you know, he's well to do and he fits right into the the town area and stuff. But, the chief has got to learn how to trust him and he's got to learn how to trust the chief because ultimately they become the only two people besides Quint that believe this is a real problem. And I got to tell you, I'm not a huge Dreyfus fan. I've seen him in a lot of stuff and he's done good to decent work. And then he's done some really crappy work in my opinion too. And mostly he just annoys me. Um, I, there's just something about him that I just don't, you know, go for, but I do think he's good in this role and I think he's really good at playing the confidence of uh, someone that would be an oceanographic expert and a shark expert at that, at that time. But he's also vulnerable because he probably never seen anything like this either. Like he studied it, but he freaks out when he sees how big the freaking thing is.
1: Oh, he definitely does. And I, I really like that the way I guess you could, you know, give credit to the, the novel that it was that they put these two characters that are, similar in their intel you know being intelligent but also in such different ways i mean you got the college white collar guy and then you got the hard working blue collar guy and they're both you know experts in their fields but completely heads the entire time just the way it is in the real world i mean you always got like these seasoned vets and then you got this college kid that comes in and it's like you know the college kid kind of sees a seasoned vet as like oh you're stuck in your ways you don't know all this new stuff where the old guy's just like yeah, you know anything. All you know is book stuff. You don't know real world shit. So I think it's just it's great with having Hooper and Quint here. And just, you know, Quint directly here is um I think he's a likable character. I think he's, you know, he's a little arrogant. He's obviously a rich kid that, you know, got his education bought for him. And, you know, he's doing this stuff in the water because it's a passion for him. It's not like he's doing it because of the money's great. I mean, I don't know what being an oceanographer or um whatever pays, but I think he obviously he's got a passion for it and he kind of Gives a little, I like his backstory about how he kind of got into it when he was a kid and he got his first boat and he caught a baby thresher shark or a bull shark or whatever it was and ended up uh, eating his boat from the inside <laughs> out. I think it's, and, and, that, and that's, I'm going to get into that too, is like the reason that these characters are so enduring and especially with like Hooper and Quint, we don't really learn much about Brody's past. And I think that's fine because we're, he's supposed to be kind of our surrogate when he's there. But like Hooper and Quint is they got great little stories that they tell throughout. And I think that's really what makes them relatable, especially both of them. And they kind of become friends at the end is kind of like these stories that they tell. And it's like just the way it's written and the act and just the way that they act, it's like, you don't, it almost puts you there and we'll we'll get to the big story that happens later in here. But even like, like I said, when Hooper's like given like his little stories throughout there, just, there's just great little tidbits and adds so much of the character.
0: I think the thing that Hooper also does is he gives an objective outside voice. So when Brody's running around going, "Guys, don't put dynamite in the water," don't be when you're there hunting a shark and all this other stuff's going on, and he's trying to keep everybody calm, he can be that outside expert that goes, "Hey, look, this is why this is." And I love that the scene they have on the beach with, after you know they've investigated the boat where the guy's head pops out and and Hooper drops the the tooth and stuff, which was a, I mean, that freaked the hell out of me as a kid, man. I like still can jump at that scene all these years later, many times I've seen it. And, um, especially the way drivers plays it. Uh, but on the beach, when they're talking with the mayor the next day and they're both going at him, Brody's like just real emotional and trying to, you know, uh, you know, really win him over. And, Hooper's trying to be real logical until he gets really pissed off and he's he's the perfect quintessential, like really smart young guy because there's just becomes a point when he just gets done and he just starts freaking out of the mayor and he's like, it's going to bite you in the ass and all this stuff. And I love that scene because again, it, you get that great character by Murray Hamilton, another great character actor. Who is a such a used car salesman as the as the mayor? And he's standing out there in that seersucker suit, and he just laughs at them both. He's like, "Yeah, you'd love to prove that get in the National Geographic." And Hooper just laughs because he's like, "This guy's a frigging moron." Yeah,
1: it just it it shows his green. It shows how green he you know Hooper is. Yeah. So, you know he's smart, but it's like stuff like that can get to him. Yeah. and I you know I, we kind of skipped over, it, but like one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie, and it's not what you think. You know, one of the scenes you think it would be my favorite is when. They put up the, the mother uh, okay in the movie. Eventually, of the one of the boys is a boy is killed, and they end up putting a bounty on the shark's head. Right. And like everybody who has a boat or buddy has a boat or has a fishing rod is out looking for the shark. And this is when we first get to meet Hooper. Is when he's walking around the the bay and. You know, he's casting people, you know, where, you know, Brody is or where this is at. And they're kind of making fun of him about it. They're like, yeah, why don't you go walk about 15 feet that way, you know, pointing towards the ocean. And I just like it when he goes over by uh, Brody and he's like, yeah, you know, those guys over there, they're not going to make it back alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. and he,
1: It's just like stuff like that that I think yeah. is just so awesome, so funny. And then also another scene too that we kind of skipped over is the guys with the roast. Yes. I, I love yes. that scene where they're on oh, the pier. Yeah. And then they throw the roast. My God, my wife would kill me, man. That was a big freaking roast, that, dude. Dude,
0: I was sitting there, at my wife and I were going like, "How much meat is that?" That had to be the huge friggin' family. Like we were you trying go, to think what that would cost just to. Get. Yeah,
1: you go out you go out today. You go out to like your, you know, Publix or whatever it is. You know, wherever you have down by you, and you go buy a big cut of meat like that. That's over hundred dollars. Oh, easy. Easily yeah easily I, the, that's probably about 150 dollar roast right good, there good I mean, thing that, about
0: working at an ag school that's got a big meat lab is you can get a good deal of that kind of stuff but yeah that's still at least a 60 70 dollar piece of meat you know
1: yeah that, that's like the size of like your average fifth grader i
0: mean yeah it's it's small and you know again though that's a great scene because again the shark isn't working so they can't show the friggin' shark they can't even get the fin to work so they're like you know what we'll have him tear the pier down and then you'll hear the turn of it, and that's so sinister because these two guys are in the water, like, well, shit. Now what do we do? And then the pier comes back to him and it's like, oh no, that's a problem. And you see these yeah, two fat that's... guys just swimming, and I'm like, yeah. But that again, it builds that great tension, and it's a scene where nothing happens. A roast gets eaten, but it it's a great tension building scene, and it happens again. It happens just in the middle of like, there's nothing happening. We don't have a random kill to have here. But we've had the the boy killed, so we need something else. And this is the next thing. And so, yeah.
1: Well, I'm thinking, too. I mean, okay, you know, let's might as well get to it, what the shark looks like. The shark is, you know, it doesn't look good, okay? No, it doesn't look like a shark. It It doesn't look at all like
0: what a great white shark looks
1: like. No, it doesn't. It looks like something that, you know, like I said, a fifth grader would draw. But uh, it's the, you know, the pier on the top of the water and later the barrels those alone are more scary than ever showing what the shark would look like. And I don't care if it was done today and they could have a realistic shark, you know, something like in the shallows Right. It, it's it's you're I'm sitting there and it's again, it's your mind's more, your mind can bring something a lot more scary than what the scene can show you. And like, even like the stuff with like the pier, you know, the, you know, the pier's kind of going back to there and everything. And I'm just like envisioning, it's like pitch black water and you got this, you know almost you know 25 foot shark and where the hell is it and how is it swimming around there it's like thoughts like that are going through my head and i'm just like that's a hell of a lot more scary than actually seeing that shark jump up out of the pier and scare those guys or grab one of them and bring them down i'm just like the thoughts like that going through my head are just a hell of a lot more scary than anything and i think the fact that the shark didn't work is probably the greatest aspect to this movie is because in a lot of you, you see this a lot of times with you know directors who you know back when they did their earlier works and how those earlier works were better than their newer stuff is that they had to use their imaginations they had to come up with solutions to be able to get around these problems and that's where you get a lot of artistic merit in things like this so it's like you know you look at something like jurassic park he shows that damn dinosaur right away
0: yeah
1: and it's like i have no doubt that if spielberg would have made jaws in the mid-90s we'd be seeing that shark all the time
0: oh and look if, if you make the book into a movie the way it's done you you know everything you need to know about the shark immediately i mean it describes isn't there
1: it, isn't know? there like a part in the book where it's actually like from the perspective of the shark like you like know what it's thinking or am i uh, thinking of something else i
0: think you're thinking about something else but there there is i mean you get a third uh, person point of view of the the great leviathan fish swims this way i mean it describes everything you want to know about that fish in the book and the thing is the other thing too and it was genius they got the the two people that went down to australia who were the um basically the shark photographers and they shot incredible looking footage of of sharks and the way they mix that in with the very few shots of the fake shark i mean if you really like eyeglass it you go That's not even the same fish and none of these fish look alike but because the way they're put together it It works. Again, the music works, the tension builds, it's all that. Because the thing is, and what Spielberg realizes is that if this movie is about the shark, then it's just going to be another B-movie remake from the 1950s and 60s. And he wasn't interested in doing that. He was interested in the drama that this caused to the people, and particularly these three guys. And it's time to get to the third one now, and that's Quint, who's nothing more than an analog for Captain Ahab from Moby Dick. All right. I mean, clearly that's all he is. And that's how he dies in the book. And that's, that's one of the big differences at the end of the book and the movie are vastly different, but the characters are almost exactly the same. And the list of actors that they offered that role to, who turned it down, Sterling Hayden and Lee Marvin. And I mean, just all these action gritty old men, you know, John Wayne wasn't around at the time, but those kind of guys, And they landed on Robert Shaw, who, you know, I've seen him in other things since. The only thing I ever knew to associate him with besides this is from Russia with Love, which is a grossly underrated Bond film. And he is a fantastic Bond villain in it. And he is so good as the salty old sea dog son of a bitch in this movie because he's such an ass to everyone, you know. But he can be because he knows something the rest of them don't. He's fought the animals. He's killed them before. He's got jaws of them hanging around his shop. He knows how to kill sharks. Hooper may know more about the biology and the behavior of the shark, but he's never caught one. And Quint's caught a dozen of them probably. And he's so hard and hard-edged, but deep down... The thing that I love about this is he acts like he doesn't want anybody around him, but then like Hooper and Brody get in on the trip pretty easy, and I think that's just Quint putting up bravado. I think he wants some men to go to battle with. You know, he tells us war stories and all that stuff. I think he's the kind of guy that likes to be in the thick of it with some dudes and slugging it out. And I mean, he has such presence on the screen, man. It's just a fantastic acting role. How Shaw totally deserved accolades for this and he didn't ever get any and that sucks because this is a fabulous performance it's the best one in the film
1: oh it is the best performance in the film now as far as him like bringing on other people i mean he did have that like little guy that's with him i think it's kind of a sidekick i think the role got kind of cut down you know to basically just the one scene where they walk away but um i always took it as like he doesn't need any help and i think the only reason that he wanted to bring guys like brody and hooper was to basically be the alpha male to these other alpha males and i think it was not even so much of like the shark killings a challenge but i think it's more of like i'm gonna go kill the shark and i'm going to basically have these two guys underneath me do what i want them to do in order to kill the shark in kind of a way to kind of boost his ego because he does have a big ego and i think that's you know one of the great parts about him is his ego is because you know he, he is your you know you'd be your guy that's in a war movie that's already served like seven duties over here and has already seen the worst of it all and he's going to be with these new guys and he's going to be the one telling the war stories and yeah you know that's his character and i think that's kind of why though he wanted like guys like hooper and brody to come with them is basically just to command these guys well it's not I- that he needed i think it was just a kind of a way because Boost his ego even more.
0: I think what I'm saying is he wanted to show other men how much of a man he was. I think, yeah exactly, exact, yeah. yeah, exactly,
1: exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. He's like, I'm gonna show off to you guys, exactly. You, know? you, guys, you guys can't do this, you know, I can do this, but you're gonna come with and you're gonna, I'm gonna show you how I do this, I'll you tell know, you. it's something.
0: Yeah, there's two there's two scenes though that he has that I think are just incredible and it's it totally I'll lay this all on Shaw. The way the way he pulls it off when they're when he's fishing the thing and he first thinks he gets the shark on the line and he's kind of reeling it in and he struggles back and forth and there's one where like he almost loses his balance and he's like and he kind of gives this look like holy cow this thing's a lot bigger than I thought it was. And then later on when it bites through the line and it gets away from him or whatever and he 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 sinks the machete into the side of the thing, and he just looks out over the sea, and he just sort of mumbles to himself, incredible. And for years, I never knew what he said, but if you look at his face in that, it's like he's genuinely impressed that nature's come up with something this badass for him to go after. Like He's like, man, I had no idea how big big a deal this was. And now, not only does he like having the other two dudes there to boss around and stuff, but he realizes... Yeah, I'm probably going to need them both to get this thing in because this is a big fish. And I, I don't know. Everything he does, though, is so machismo. I, I think one of the funniest scenes, and it's unintentional humor, is Brody radioing in for help. And he walks in there and just beats the shit out of the radio with the bat. He's like, stop calling for help. debap! bap Don't be a pussy, Brody. Come on. <laughs> Let's go. And and I, I love that. See, I, I,
1: I, I didn't take the scene as that. I took the scene as he was losing it because he didn't want any help because he was going to do this. And if they weren't going to do it, they were going to die. I think it was kind of wow. like his like, I, that, that's how I took it. Cause he's hitting that thing. And it's like, you could tell he's out of his mind because Brody's in the right there. It's like, yeah, this thing is not going how they envisioned. They need some help or they need to get out of there. And he's taking it as like, no. We're doing this or we're dying, and that's how I always took that scene. Yeah, if
0: you think about it, the fishing trip that they go on is a horrific disaster. Everything they try fails miserably. The shark bests them at everything except the grand finale with the the air tag, which they set up on the boat earlier on. And of course, MythBusters has ruined for all of us. But whatever, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the ending when we get there. But yeah, but I it's mean- a,
1: but but it's like you know you're saying like. You know that they're, they're mixing in scenes of other, like real sharks doing everything, and the whole thing is like stuff like that. You you don't notice that, even though it is kind of like you know it's front and center in the screen. But you're so involved with the characters and what's going on that things like that, it's just like it just doesn't even bother you. No, it doesn't,
0: and and the way the the way the shark just operates throughout the film is what's so great. There's the the scene where the shark kills the kid, the Kentner kid. I mean, that's a good looking move with a model like jumping up and swallowing on that kid. I mean, it it looks like you look at it and you're like, what the hell was that? And like I've you know I've owned this movie forever, right? So back when when I first got it on a VHS, Nick, we had like super slow mo on our remote, which I thought was the coolest thing on the planet, uh, and I would just like. Frame by frame, watch that. And you still can't really tell what the hell's happening. And it wasn't until years later when I heard Spielberg and, and company talking about it. They said, we shot that purposely where you're like, what, what was that? And then you you realized, oh, shit, did I just see a shark swallow that kid in front of me? and that would be how you would react to it though i mean have you ever been like on that you drive around for work a lot i'm sure you've seen accidents and when you first see them it's like surreal saw,
1: saw one today wow <laughs> saw, yeah saw saw an 18 wheeler that the guy was definitely dead he was on the oh, side of a cliff man. and he crashed it in there's nothing left of his cap and I, i've seen it happen firsthand and it is like that i mean it is like where and that 's why I think that's film this, this scene is so perfect, and again I, again, it was because the shark didn 't work that they had to do it like this was they filmed it in a way like exactly like you said you don't realize what's going on until after it's happened, and that's when you get the pullback you know you get that hitchcock pullback with Brody, yeah. and it's just like as soon as that hits you're like that's what happened, and then they kind of do like a little bit more of a close up you see that fountain of blood coming up, and I tell you like that scene right there is like one of the most still it's like one of the most freakiest scenes I've ever seen in a movie because it is so horrific. Because one, it's a kid. Two, it's like you know it's going to happen. And even when it does happen, you don't realize that it happened until after it happened. So it's just, right. it's a great scene. And that's why, you know, what I'm going to get into it with you right now. This film is a horror movie. I don't care. You, <laughs> it's it, it is it, it's a horror movie. And, you know, you can bring up like stuff about like, you know, people going around killing sharks afterwards. They don't do that with an action movie, okay? It's not like, you know, that people are going to be going out there freak. They were scared shitless of sharks. I I don't. don't That's the whole thing. Is like this. Yeah. No, it's it's not action. It's it's a horrific film. It's a horrific film from beginning to end. And it's like people got these like such like hard definitions of what horror is, and I don't fucking get it because it's like you know. Movies like dramas or period pieces, like people just accept that's what it is. But like people with horror movies, it's like it's got to have this and this and this and this in here. And if it's not, then it's going to be a thriller or it's going to be some other type of generic label. And it's like, no, a horror film is taking something that's taking a normal circumstance and making it extraordinary in horrific ways. And that's what this is. It's you're going to the beach, and what's out there is a 25 foot killing machine. That's fucking scary. And it's like, you know, going out trick or treating and there's a guy with a mask who's going around killing you. It's it's horrific. It's taking something that shouldn't be scary and making it scary. I mean, that that's the definition of a horror movie to me.
0: I think you're making an excellent point that the the setup of this movie is a horror film. I think it transitions to being a a character adventure film when they get on the boat and they go after the shark. And here here's why I say that. Because so much of the film then is all about the interplay between those three actors and, and the three characters, the way they learn to relate to each other. And there's a clear hierarchy on the boat. Quince, the captain of the boat. Hooper knows how to drive boats, so he gets to do that. The chief don't know shit. So you know what he gets to do? He gets to ladle that shit into the <laughs> sea. And I, I love that's a great scene, too. And it's so cheesy looking with the head coming up. And he's like, eh, come here and chum some of this. And I'm like, I've been the low man on the pole a few times. And yeah, I've and often chum, thought to chum, myself. Chum, chum
1: does not smell that bad, by the way. <laughs> no,
0: it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and I've never looked at Old Spice the same either, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> in my whole life. But. I, I do I do remember at times in my life and career being the low man on the pole, and it still happens from time to time. And every time I get into doing like this mundane stuff, I'm like, Y'all come down here and chump some of this. And I'll say that and people will look at me, especially the millennials in the office and they have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm like, Let's go educate your ass at a theater later tonight. But the the other side is I, I understand Brody's plight because the the ultimate thing is that Brody is the everyman. man. He's he is our avatar. You're right we know so little about his backstory because we don't need to, he needs to be blank so we can put ourselves on him. That's why Hooper and Quint have such rich stories because we don't yeah. want to relate to them. We're supposed to relate yeah. to Brody. And then
1: that's, and this whole thing is like, would Brody work any better if like you found out that he accidentally shot a kid in the city and he couldn't no. take the stress and he, it all, all it would do is it would just pull you away from relating with the character.
0: Exactly. Like it, if you gave him too much of a story, it, it it uh, doesn't allow you to to project yourself onto it that's what a good protagonist does and it, it's why you don't know enough about him and that's how you relate to him it, luke skywalker in the original star wars we don't really know anything about him when we meet him but we're able to sort of project ourselves on him hell he wears all white for most of it anyway too that i mean that's not done by accident that's you know, there's psychology to this stuff and Brody's the same way is that he has no idea what he's got himself into and he's also the one that's the quickest to push the panic button because most of us would be like "Oh, we need a bigger boat uh, we need to go back Um, this is not good you know because I would be that well, guy uh,
1: in the novel don't they go out three times <laughs> oh yeah they,
0: they come back and forth like in the novel that's the thing is that they go out and then they come back and then they go out and they come back and they go out and they come back they don't stay on the boat and I, Spielberg made the choice of like when they get on the boat it's them and And the sea, and on the boat, and we're not going back home because I don't want them, I don't want them to have to go home and have a break from it. And he felt like that in the book that gave him a break because that's what happens is they go back, and that's how Brody eventually figures out that Hooper and his wife are screwing each other, and there's all that other crap going on. And you don't need any of that, you know. Once they get on the boat, this film switches gears and becomes other things.
1: The boat almost becomes its own character as well. I it mean, is the its is, own, yes. Yeah, and that boat's great. I mean, I, I love being on the Orca, and I, I just to see them come back like every night, and then seeing like Brody go lay down in bed and get up in the morning and do the whole staring at the floor thing every day—that would just be so stupid. It's just like I'm glad that Spielberg had the genius, you know. Do say nope, they're on the boat, and that's you know what it's going to be, and it makes it claustrophobic. It that's makes it more intimate. Is,
0: you know, I've seen a lot of people guess about this, and we're never really told how long they're out there. I mean, I guess it's a couple of three days or whatever, but we really don't know because there's lots. I took
1: of, it. I, I took it as two nights. I yeah, took it as two nights. Yeah,
0: there's lots of time lapses, but I, in my mind, I've always played games again watching this film a hundred times that they could have been out there for three or four days, and like you know that even makes it more fun is that. If you've ever spent any time away, like when you're out on in the wild or doing anything, and I've done some of that stuff, that will wear on you physically in a way that nothing else will because you're constantly fighting the elements, particularly on the Yeah, boats. and it's exactly
1: why Quint broke the radio. Everything yeah. was wearing on him. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. why he broke. But the other thing, too, is why I say it's two nights is, you know— Again, this is just stupid me looking at it, but it's like Brody Brody doesn't got no scruff. So it's like they weren't <laughs> out there that long. Like right. I can get it that, you know what, maybe he's one of these guys that doesn't really grow facial hair that quick. I mean, me, I got a freaking five o'clock shadow by like two in the, mor- two in the afternoon. But like, that's why I was like. I'm like, they don't look that disheveled being out there. You know, like point. I always said, like, yeah, it's like, you know, you got the first night, first night went fine. They had the second night. And then the second night is where they're doing all their war stories. And also like, the bu- then the shark ends up breaking through the hull.
0: Right, right, and let's let's talk about that great scene because they're on the hunt, and we've talked about the barrels and the you know the air barrels, and that's a great way to sort of say that the shark's there and they're not really there, and they have a lot of back and forth with it. But the, I, I love how they're sitting around the galley at night, and they're basically just eating dinner, and they just start telling you know how'd you get scar- that scar?
1: Yeah, the scar, and oh my god, I am so happy that they didn't do what it was going to be. So when I first watched this, I'm like, just wait. Brody's going to interject and he's going to have the worst one. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's going to be like, oh, he's going to pull up in his shirt and there's going to be a gunshot wound and it's going to be like, you know, half an inch away from my heart or from my spine. And that's why we ended up moving. I'm so glad that they had him doing exactly what the audience was doing and just sitting back, you know, whether you're in the movie theater drinking your, you know, 42 ounce soda or him, he's kind of sipping on his coffee or tea. And he's just listening to these guys talk.
0: I love how Brody like looks at his hernia. Like, eh, I'm not going to tell everybody about that. You know, yeah. that time I was picking up my kid, and all of a sudden, oh, holy shit! You know, I mean, the, yeah, I, I love that 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 he can't relate to them at all. And that's the thing, too, is that for a rich college boy like Hooper, you know, which is what Quint has called him at this point, he's actually had some shit happen to him. He's been bitten by a shark. He got hit by an eel. I mean, he's you know, if you're gonna play around in that world, you're gonna. You know, yeah but, but the, to me kind
1: of i kind of took it as like you know the kid that grew up rich and he's got a scar from when he fell down and broke his arm horseback <laughs> horseback riding you right. know what i mean Or he, it's he like, got it at the yeah line. i got a feeling that he you know he's got a lot of like you know cool injuries and everything like that but it's all brought on by the wealth and everything where quince is brought on by you know being in the military and you know living a hard life well, but again, it's just like again. That, but that's what's great about them is like they're both opposite sides of the same coin.
0: And that's the thing is that it's it's different as Hooper is of Quint is he you can tell he looks up to him and he's trying to relate to him and they do relate over that they bond over that. Oh, they drink to your leg, you know, and they they have this whole thing. And th- and that's what happened yeah. too
1: is like yeah like Hooper like finally comes to appreciate everything that Quint has done. And then I think it, you know then Quint looks at Hooper and he's able to relate to the guy a little bit and then all, but also realize that you know he's not just some stupid rich kid you know what i mean it's like yeah he does have some merit to him and it's like this mutual respect that happens there and it's just like you know it's like it is with you know i always joke about this with my wife it's like man when you women fight it's like you guys get evil and nasty with each other and i'm like <laughs> two guys like we can hate each other all during the day but if we go for a couple of beers we're cool then. You know what I mean? And I think that's exactly what happened here is like they're at each other's throat and throwing insults. And then all you got to do is, you know, they have a couple Budweiser's and also these guys are, you know, buddies.
0: Well, just think about like growing up on the playground, like you would be in shoving matches and beat the crap out of each other. And two minutes later, you're friends again. Cause that's how guys learn how to relate to each other is by pushing each other around and, trying to see who's the biggest dog and you oh yeah
1: definitely i mean how many yeah. times do you like go hang out with your friends you're like hey what's up douchebag yeah or, hey, what's exactly up, what's up you, what's up asshole and you say something <laughs> like that it's like women aren't like that they go and give each other hugs but then it's like the guys are all really cool like behind the scenes you know like i get home and you don't talk crap about your friends but then like the wife's like oh my god and then she wore this and said this and it's just like yeah and you sit there and you sit there and you think that we're weird that we call each other douchebags.
0: Well, it's it's how you relate to each other. But, yeah, but these men are related to each other. And it leads to what I'm going to go ahead and say now is one of the best scenes in cinematic history. And it's the best scene in this movie, the Indianapolis speech, which is an amalgam of a lot of people's ideas of, of how to put it together. A lot of people wrote drafts of that. People not credited for it either. Shaw was one of them. Spielberg. You had. Uh John Millius write a draft of it. You had a guy named Howard Sackler who'd worked on the original script on it. Gottlieb wrote on it. Benchley wrote a version of it. It's not in the book, you know it's not you know, this kind of happens, but there's nothing there's no big scene like this, but it's such a great scene, and it's, it's it's all in Shaw's delivery, man. It's just this monologue, and it's nothing but a slow pull on on him and just that slow build of that music and that creaking of the wood and the water. And he, and the break in his voice when he cracks and he almost starts to cry thinking about it and I'm like I mean this is just I mean if you've ever listened to particularly men that served in World War II ever tell you about some of the things they saw and what they did and all that and I mean it will just it you talk about a horror scene this is one of the most horrific things in the film he talks about a boatload of people. That all get picked off by a bunch of sharks because they've been doing a mission that's so secret nobody even knew to miss them for a week. And I'm, I'm like, how crazy is that, right? That that happened, and it's and it's historic. And the fact that he walked out of it and it gives you a complete understanding of that's exactly why Quint is the man that he is. He don't wear a life jacket. He didn't give half a damn about anything because he's seen death in ways that none of us will ever understand. You know, and that's why he's so, so grizzled and hard. And it it makes you really appreciate him. And it's what makes his death so tragic later, too, is that he survived all of that. And, you know, he's going to die at the hands of a shark, which is, you know, poetic justice in a lot of ways. But just such a great scene.
1: It's it's not even what he says, but it's how he says it. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like any time that you know if you if, you, if you're if you talking to someone and you're telling them a real personal story about you kind of the three different emotions that you go through when you tell the story i mean originally you know you start off you're kind of jokey a little bit about it but then it kind of slowly turns serious and then at the end it's almost like you kind of got the look in the eye or the feeling like i can't believe i just told them that and that's exactly what you get from quint where he tells a story and of course he ends with it. And he goes, you know, and we delivered the bomb. And it's just kind of his way of just like stopping what he was saying and just to get to, you know what I mean? Just to, You know what I mean? Where it's yeah. just like, he tells a story and then he ends on something else. And that's his way of kind of being like, diverting attention back away from what he was to you know well you get get what i'm saying he ends
0: on that cynical note that that is just in everything that he says he just drips cynicism with everything he says and he ends on the well we did our job and delivered the bomb so i guess it was worth it it's kind of what he's saying he's like was it i don't know not for me to say but well think about it this way though he he had a tattoo of it and he bothered to have it removed It's like, he didn't even want to think about it. And the fact that Hooper noticed the the bare patch of skin, he's like, well, you know, what's that thing? Or uh, Brody's the one that notices it. And and then they get in, you know, get into the story. And you hear, like, he wanted to distance himself from that so much that he went through the trouble of it. And having a tattoo removed back in those days was basically you burned it off of yourself with chemicals, I and mean, it was a pretty rough way of doing it. He probably did it with a friggin' sander, you know, is is the way it was done. I mean, that, my dad always told me, he said, you know, I knew guys like that, but that's how they remove tattoos. They didn't want to remember they got sanders after themselves. I was like, holy cow, you know, but no, that'll do it, you know, and Quint's the kind of guy that probably would have pulled something like that off, and the fact that he just tries to end it back on like he's playing it off like a joke, because he doesn't want to relate it, and they don't have anything to say, like Hooper and Brody... Are both just completely gobsmacked at that point because they have no yeah, it's, idea. Yeah,
1: he, he ends the story as a way to break the tension.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and yep. it, it's also broken by the fact that the shark decides. Uh, excuse me, uh, I'm going to come over here and uh, flood you now. <laughs> you know, because he's <laughs> I'm here with these barrels and I, I don't like your story. So, um, so the shark has to intervene. But yeah, no, it's it's a great moment. I mean, you again, you watch that scene now and you're like, how do you not just like mail the guy the trophy that minute? I mean, were there that many great performances besides this the, that the Academy noticed that year? Because I've seen a lot of films from 1975, and I don't know that I ever saw one with a a more harrowing story than that one.
1: Uh, movies, but this is, but like I said, though, this is what they consider to be a genre film in a way. And You're back right. then, it's just they, they weren't seen as anything but that. You know what I mean? This is just going to be. A stupid monster movie, and that's what they're going to see it as. And even though I think the movie was, you know, it was a hit, I don't think it really hit this like quintessential, you know, classic piece of art that it's being seen as now. As you know, it was nominated for
0: Best Picture, so I mean, it had critical.
1: Was it nominated for Best Picture? Yeah, it was
0: nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win, but it was nominated. So.
1: Oh well, I guess I was wrong there. I don't know. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know it was nominated for best picture. Yeah. I thought it was just one of these movies, almost like Halloween or something, where it was kind of like, yeah, it was a success, but it wasn't really like you know seen as a classic right away. But I guess I'm wrong.
0: No, people not the first time, jay Not the first people time. People were definitely. I think you're right. I think in a lot of ways they saw this as a genre film, but because of scenes like this one that that are so human, that again, it went from being this horror film in the first first half, like you talked about to so now it's this character study and how men face their biggest fears and things like that. And what you realize is that Hooper's fear is not being taken seriously. That's that's what, because he looks like he's privileged. So he tries to fight against that privilege. And Brody just wants to survive and go back home. He didn't even want to be on the damn water. You know, that's, that's his thing. And Quint is always chasing the memory of, the indianapolis crash and the fact that i mean clearly it made him hate sharks is his whole you know thing was he hated sharks because of this uh and you think that that had to you know come from this and that's what makes this film so different than your standard genre pick than like the blob or the thing from another world which are fine films in their own right but they're not um they're not transcendent necessarily the way this was, but it, pretty quickly, I mean, people realized this was a good movie, so um, it was okay. it was pretty pretty good from the get go. But
1: I, I don't know. I, I look at the Oscars that year, and it's like, you know. Like, Dog Day afternoon was a big movie that year and it was like Chris Sarandon was nominated over John Cazale. I don't know I just yeah. think that was crazy Now that but, movie hey,
0: though that movie though was a boundary pusher completely though man I mean you had a transgender relationship and all kinds of violence so that movie was movie's messed up if you watch it now like nowadays like you, you sort of see all that stuff and you're like, oh, okay because we talk about those things in the 1970s you didn't talk about that stuff in public. You didn't talk about that kind of thing in in good company, as they would say, necessarily. That's what made that kind of movie, you know, what it is. And so. um, Well,
1: that that movie and Shampoo, those are pushing the boundaries.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But it was nominated for Best Picture. And then it won Oscars for editing and sound and music. A lot of people will tell you, Verna Fields built this movie with Spielberg in the editing booth. That they really found the movie in the editing and, and cutting through a lot of film and that's what spielberg's always said you know there's some cut scenes and stuff and if you want to watch them you go right ahead but uh what you see is the very best of everything we had and like up yeah. to the last. I, I think
1: i think i think a lot of stuff they cut out though was just special effects stuff that wouldn't work i mean you got, you got the scene in the pond where the shark comes and attacks and originally that was a lot more graphic it was the and you can actually watch a deleted scene on youtube where the shark you know gets the guy of the boat and he's dragging him around the water and then they actually he grabs onto that kid uh brody's older son and they're both getting dragged and i think it's like they intended it to be that the guy saved the son's life or something because the shark was going for both of them and Yeah. yeah it's just a lot of stuff like what, that was cut, and for good reason, though. And
0: what Spielberg said is that he just had a really bloody, gory scene with the Kentner kill, the the kid, and he didn't want to have another one. He was like, I, "We've done that now. If we do that twice, it's like now we're now we're now we are just doing something cheap and exploitative, and that's not really what he wanted to do." Because that, after that, I mean, the violence in the film decreases drastically after that moment. I mean, there's just almost none. The rest of it, it's all action violence. The rest of it, a, so.
1: But even like that scene in the pond, though, it works so much better just getting the three seconds of the boat over and the shark coming up. Oh, yeah, the leg fall. And that is oh, it's so great. much better because, yeah. again, it just leaves it to your imagination. And again, imagination is going to work best because your imagination knows what scares you the most. Look, so.
0: Im- implied violence is always better than overt. I mean, it's the thing Rob Zombie's never learned in any of his films. Yeah, yeah but you like, Saw,
1: you like the Saw movies. I
0: you? like Saw movies for another reason. And one day we'll tackle those. That's what we're talking all about right. today. All right. The best <laughs> thing about that scene, though, the one you're talking about, is the shark's mouth is agape and it's coming up and then all of a sudden it just disappears. And you realize that's when he's got him and he's sinking. And it's like, oh, that's just, I mean, that's, again, it's the kind of thing that I wouldn't know what to do if I saw something like that, but it just freaks me out. But we need to talk really about the last big scenes in the film here because the boat gets disabled because it gets waterlogged. And so Hooper comes up with this idea of, you know, let me get my shot, Quint. So he puts his shark cage together, we get a little montage, and he's going to try to stick the shark, he's going to try to poison it. And in the book and in the original script, this was Hooper's death. He was supposed to go down when the shark hits that cage and takes him out. And what happened was, Bron Valley Harper, that was shooting that that footage down in Australia, got a a bit of a footage where one of the sharks got caught on top of a cage. And the thing you got to know about a shark, particularly great white sharks, is they have to constantly be in motion or they'll drown very quickly. And if they don't have water running over their gills all the time, they'll die. And that's why they completely spaz and freak out if you try to stop one of them, because that's no. I have to keep moving. And they caught one doing that. And I mean, it absolutely destroyed the cage it was in. And they're like, this is awesome. And they realized they didn't have their mannequin in the cage. And they're like, shit, what are we going to do? So they realize that, okay, we'll give him an out. We'll let, we'll let Hooper. And this is what's so weird about the end of the movie is Hooper slinks away after that and he just kind of hangs out on the bottom for about 10 minutes. And I'm like, where the hell did you go, man? Did you go get a sandwich? You know, I mean, he just disappeared from the movie. So it all, for a long time, I mislabeled that as Hoover's such a coward, man. He gets his big shot and he, he thinks out, you know, but that really, I would be, do- I would be hiding behind coral too. I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. That didn't, that didn't yeah. go too well. <laughs> That's, but, the, but you tell that man, great, great footage again of that shark tearing that cage to pieces. And it's, it's amazing looking. And of course, when they reel up what's left of it, Quentin and Brody are like, Oh crap. You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's,
1: it is great. It's uh. The thing I think I think even with like shark shark cages too is what people don't realize is shark cages ain't gonna save you from crap. You know what I mean? No. If you're if you're in a water with a great white shark and that thing wants to get into that cage, it's gonna get into that cage. It's almost like an illusion of safety. It's actually the shark cage is used for other reasons more than just protecting you from the shark. It's more of a Yeah, but it's just it's one actually, of those things where it's
0: actually an attraction for the shark. The electromagnetic vibe off of it'll bring them near you. That's how you get a good picture. Yeah. That's why are yeah. really there. But, yeah.
1: yeah, the whole thing though with sharks is sharks. Minus Jaws here, or Bruce, or whatever you want to call them. Sharks don't like people. You know no, what I mean? They won't. don't. They don't. They don't want to eat people. And that's when you're in a shark cage and it sees you completely. They're not going to attack you because they know they don't have no desire to eat you.
0: Well, they so. don't know what you are. See, you got to think. You got to remember about a shark too. A shark doesn't have any hands. Its hand is its mouth. So the only thing it knows how to do is to clamp on. And if if that is food, then good. And if not, I'm going to spit that out. Sometimes that's a bad proposition for you, you know. And sometimes they're like, "Eh, that'll do," you know, like. You know, you may not like a Vienna sausages in a can, but sometimes that'll do. And so that's that's a shark. But it's an animal that doesn't think it doesn't have a motive. All right. And that's the thing about this one is we never really get that it's got any motive other than there's food and it's just hanging around where the food is.
1: But I, but I have to ask, though, I mean, if they went with their initial thing, though, where Hooper gets killed by the shark, which I'm assuming the shark would have ate him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then he would have had to have a motive because you think he'd be full after eating Hooper. Well, no, he wants some more. What, what actually
0: happens is he basically gets bitten in half. Like he he uh, Hooper tries to to punch him with that um, bang stick and misses him, and the shark just clamps down on him, and that's the last thing Hooper sees is the shark's jaws coming down on it, and it basically bites his head off. And mm. so it's it's like well uh, I didn't know what that was. And so, because the shark doesn't eat Quint in the book, it Quint it, it attacks the boat and Quint stabs it with another harpoon. He doesn't shoot the harpoons; he throws them in the in the book, uh, like you would in a, a you whaling know, Captain Ahab kind of thing. And Quint's foot gets tied up in the rope, and so he the shark goes down and drowns Quint because he's just tied up behind him. And it starts swimming up after Brody, but it's got so much crap hanging off of it, including Quint, that it drowns the shark like stops about three feet in front of Brody and just hangs there and just sort of drowns and turns over on its side in front of him because it can't support all the barrels that are on it and all that other crap. It succumbs wow, to Wow, that's
1: incredibly lame. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's what Spielberg thought. He was like, I, uh, we can't do that. That's so anticlimactic. What can we do? And so they came up with this whole thing about, okay, compressed air. Well, that could possibly be explosive, right? Maybe. And that's all they needed to hear. He was like, fine, we'll shoot it. And, I mean, that's I'm going to tell you, man, it's a great scene. we got to talk about Quint's death, though, before we get into Brody's big scene. That shark hopping up on the back of that, that boat, now, yes, it looks incredibly lame and fake. But for the time and just trying to put yourself in the mindset, if you saw that in a theater, that would have freaked you the hell out, man, seeing something like that happen. Because that was the scene in the book that everyone in Hollywood was like, there's no way on earth you're ever going to be able to make that one. You'll never get a real shark to do it. And if you did, no actor you know, is ever going to be near it in the shot, so it won't look like anything. And you'll never get a fake one to look like it can sink a boat. And by George, they figured out a way to make it look like it sank the boat. It's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I... <laughs> it's still kind of funny looking i mean oh oh, the best thing now
0: is the little meme where somebody's put googly eyes on the shark that's hilarious
1: no i'm just thinking about when it actually like jumps up and comes on the bottom comes on the bow of the ship it's it's funny but you know for the money that they had and everything that they had, they did you know second to none as far as what they did but it still looks funny and as Michael J. Fox said in Back to the Future 2, the shark still looks fake. It it does
0: but you know what a a crazy moment there because they start slipping down and Quint grabs a hold of Brody's hand and their gloves, if you've ever had on those kind of gloves and I've been in that situation, the gloves are too wet and he slips out and that look on Quint's face like oh shit like, but I'm just like, I'm notes. thinking the
1: entire time though. I'm like, just keep on kicking him in the nose. You can, you you can stay away. You can stay you th- away. You
0: thought, and I mean, what, but what a great scene because Quinn is stabbing the thing with his machete and he's just like, I ain't going out like that. And yeah, you are. And I mean, he just chomps him in half. And I, I remember seeing that. I mean, again, I saw this movie when I was a kid. I mean, like a little kid. And I was sitting there going like, wow, really? <laughs> I mean, I, it blew my mind. And it's still one of those moments when you see it, it's just like, oh oh that's bad that's real bad <laughs> you know because in- now you think hooper's dead or at least incapacitated quinn's dead brody's screwed <laughs> you know? so it's
1: like so it's like hooper just like he's on the bottom just kind of like looking up at this going like oh I, crap!" i
0: imagine he is down there saying prayers to whatever god he didn't believe in at that moment or whatever. i'm serious like i don't know what hooper's doing but he he ain't getting near any of that so yeah, i'm thinking
1: like you know okay well if both of those guys die what are you going to do are you just gonna like hope the shark kind of swims away and then you're gonna be able to find a boat or i think. i guess, that, I, I guess you're probably not even thinking that far ahead right now i you're think just the plan that you is i'm gonna
0: let that thing go that way and then i'm going back to land and i'm gonna get in my car and i'm gonna drive away and be like oh i don't know what you're talking about you know <laughs> and he's just gonna go forget it all i don't know i mean it's it is one of the it's the one of the plot hole questions of what, what the hell is super doing but I think we're supposed to realize he's frightened out of his mind. And so he's just, you know, he, he doesn't know. And all this is really happening very quick. I mean, this is all within four or five minutes of itself. And you get a, you get the one scene that's always been weird to me. The boat's starting to sink and Brody's, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And the shark busts through the, the window of the galley. And Brody, like, hits it in the face a couple times and it swims away. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, Brody, like, summoned all kinds of courage that moment. Because when that thing came through the glass, I was like, oh, he's done. That's it. I mean, that was, I don't know why the shark stopped short. Like, I've never understood what that was all about.
1: I don't know. It's very weird. But but, but then you got, you know, of course, you know, like the shark goes and like kind of regains himself. I guess he's like a bull right now because he needs to go get some, uh, he needs to get a little bit of distance to be able to get some traction. And uh, Brody ends up, you know, going up to the crow's nest on the boat. And of course, the shark, the shark just can't wait. Wait, wait, wait! Like thirty seconds for him to come submerge. Nope, he's coming right at
0: him. Oh, it's—I mean, he, it's like you said—he's he's backed up, he's circling around, he's like, "I'm coming for you now, baby," and I got this big silver. But that's thing what in I mean, mouth, though. It's like you're talking about <laughs> the, the
1: shark doesn't have a motive; it's just a kill. It's like, no, it does at this point. Well, it's pissed. It's like, it's like, like hes, ma- he's yeah. making it theatrical at this yeah, point. Yeah,
0: he's he's pissed and he's coming. You know, I mean, that's—but you know, again, it's a great tension because you've got that music pumping, you got Brody shooting, you got those bullets whizzing through the water. I'm going tell you, man—if you ever tried to shoot anything underwater, that will totally deflect your shot like completely. This is a hell of a shot that he pulls off to hit the thing. And what you don't realize is that he's right up on him when he shoots him. I mean, it's like almost point blank. It's a wonder if it blow Brody's face off, you know, if that had really been an explosion. But I've got to tell you, there are a lot of coup de grace lines in cinema history, but I don't know if I've ever heard one cooler than smile you son of a bitch. And he pulls that trigger and you get that great explosion noise.
1: What about "Get away from her, you bitch"?
0: I think it's better than that. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you. I think I think it's I think that line is inspired by this one. I I believe that completely. I don't know how you can say that and not see that. I mean, "Smile, you son of a bitch." Is I mean, this is nobody did that. You know, this was calling your shot, and it's what you want too. I mean, Benchley thought this was the dumbest thing on the planet. He said, "This is the stupidest thing I've ever." Nobody's gonna believe this. And then when he saw it, he said, "Holy cow, you pulled it off." And Spielberg said, "If I can get them to buy everything else I've done up to that point, they'll give me those thirty seconds." And he was right. If you're invested in the film, and and I oh, it's it's you know, almost
1: exactly like Aliens, where it's like you know she's climbing up through the vacuum of space, and it's like, yeah, it's like it's the last thirty seconds. You just got to give the movie it because there's really no other way out. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess they could add something where maybe he had reserve gas tanks or something on the boat, and he put them in the shark's mouth and ended up doing like a gasoline fire in the that, that would have been I a
0: little, little, little wicked elaborate there to try and get into that it was it was elaborate enough that they shot an air tank you know and it didn't swap well, what about out? like
1: hooper like popping up at the right second with like his like injection thing and going like "Oop, gotcha
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that way yeah again anti-climatic though i think hooper probably was on the bottom and he saw that explosion and was like Oh, I hope that's the shark. And what I love, though, man. With that much
1: blood, it would have to be the shark.
0: (laughs) Well, what I love is you get the scene of the shark, headless now, sinking to the bottom. And I and that you know that sort of rolling over and and if you've seen Spielberg's Duel, it's the, sort of the same thing when the truck runs a spoiler alert. The truck runs off the the cliff at the end. It's the same kind of thing. It's this roar from some fifties dinosaur Like Trimmers, movie. The Trimmers, yeah, exactly. Thank you. It's the same thing. Yeah, Trimmers certainly borrowed this from. Can you can you fly? Well, Trimmers
1: sucker? is Jaws in the in the desert. I mean, yeah,
0: but is. there's no way you can tell me. Can you fly? Sucker is the same as smile. You son. That's not even close.
1: <laughs> well, it was originally, can you fly fucker? but They had to cut it out to get, no, seriously. Yeah. It was what they did. it. They didn't get a PG 13. I do. I
0: remember we reviewed that. You know, I'll say this now, if they had made this movie like 10 years later, Kevin Bacon or 10 or 15 years later, Kevin Bacon would be a hell of a cheap Brody. I would, I would totally buy that. Like it, he's that kind of actor, but anyway, no, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the, the grand end and you see the sharks end and you see Brody like hanging onto the crow's nest and, like for a minute, he's like, oh, thankfully that's over. And then he realizes, oh, okay, now what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know? And that's yeah. when Hooper pops up and they kind of grab a couple of extra barrels and swim back home.
1: Yeah. I'm always, my always thing at the end is like, you yeah, guys sure there was only one shark? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, those, you know, and it's, you know, like, You got the movie like Deep Blue Sea, which, you know, it's a corny whatever movie. And I always liked that at the end where the guy's got his feet in the water and the dude looks over him and he goes, shirt was only one, you know, shirt was only like four sharks. And he's like, yeah. And he's like looking at his feet and he like pulls it up. He goes, yeah, thank you. It's like, that's what I would say like at the end of this movie where I'm like, you guys better hightail at home you don't know where this shark came from you don't know if it's got brothers or a mother or whatever it's like get out of there now and if i was them too i'd be like you know we'll get the jaws too in a little bit but it's like man if i was brody i'd be getting the hell out of there man i'm like i'm like i'm like moving to like kansas you know what i mean it's like or montana i'm getting far away from the water at this point
0: yeah you know what a question we will ask on the next podcast but at this point i think we're at the part where it's time to give final thoughts popcorn ratings so what are yours for jaws
1: uh that's a dumb question of course it's an extra large popcorn i mean this is like one of the best movies ever made in my opinion i mean this is like always going to be in my top 10 movies i mean yes me you know movies that i think you know if i was on a desert island you know i would probably be like the godfather goodfellas you know Empire Strikes Back, Alien and Jaws. I mean, it's like one of these movies where it's just it's so good and what's great about it is it's immensely watchable and rewatchable and it's just you can be Saturday afternoon and you're cleaning the house and you put it on and it's brody, you know, or it's a quint scratching the nail board. You're leaving it on. If it's Saturday, you know, Sunday morning at 2 a.m. and you can't sleep and this movie's on, you're keeping it on. I mean, no matter what time of the day or how you're feeling, this movie is great. I mean, it like I said, one of the best movies ever made. It definitely deserves its place in the pantheon of, you know, great movies. And to me, I don't this I don't know if this will even be controversial, but to me, I think it is Stu Spielberg's best movie. I, I know there's a lot of people out there that love Raiders of the Lost Ark. I actually think it's okay. Um <laughs> You know, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, E.T., which I don't like to sue me. Um, but like to me, it's like Jaws is like it's it's his best movie and one of my favorites.
0: It's a fantastic film. I, extra large popcorn, obviously, for me, it's my favorite film. I've said that. So no surprise for me on that. But you said something there. It's the rewatchability. And I, I can only say this about maybe two or three films is that every time I watch this, I can find something I didn't see before, I didn't know before. There's so many different ways to enjoy this experience. And one of my favorite things to do has been to introduce this film to people that maybe haven't seen it or didn't really you know, go for it or whatever, or don't even like this kind of stuff. But then they watch this and they're like, holy cow, there's so much to this movie. And again, this is a special one for me because it's it's one from childhood. And I think things from childhood that hold up over time are so, so rare. E.T. is a great example. I watched that again last year, and it was boring. It's not that great.
1: <laughs> I don't like E.T. But, yeah. uh, but, but I'll even get into it. It's like, you know, I, I brought up earlier that this movie was something I didn't actually sit down and fully watch until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, movies were, that people put really highly are based upon nostalgia. Yeah, and you know where it's like, well, if you watch it nowadays, you know, well, it wouldn't be as good. Or if you watched it later in life and not when you were eight years old or ten years old, it wouldn't be as good. No, no, not, that's not the case of this movie. I mean, I've even watched it with my son. I mean, we, me and my son, had a really cool experience where at the YMCA got to wash us in a pool. I mean, it's a <laughs> very, very cool mm-hmm. movie, and I I've. Yeah. So to me, it's just like it it just transcends even that nostalgia value. I mean, like I said, it's like The Godfather where it's just it's that damn good.
0: Oh, it's a Memorial Day thing for me that I watch this movie sometime that weekend every every year because I just sort of associate this with that time of year. It's really more before the July movie. But but I always kind of put it in in that time of year because that's kickoff of summer for me. And like this year, even I, I was sitting here with my wife and I just put it on. Because I said that gotta do my annual summer kickoff of Jaws. You know, this is summer for me and it always it always equates to that for me. So I don't know that I'll say it's Spielberg's best, but it's my favorite of his. I'll say that hands down. It's very much my favorite thing he ever did. And I think the thing I've enjoyed about it most is that he's never shied away from how important it was to people and how important it was for him. And he's I mean, he's given a lot of his time and energy to The, uh, you know, the documentaries that have been made about it and all the making of stuff. And again, I do recommend the making of that are on the DVDs. They're really, really good uh, if you're into this film. And it's also just a good sort of bit about cinema history in the 70s and how things were done. It's different than it is nowadays. But uh, this film is uh, classic in, in all the terms. So Extra Large Popcorn. I'm really interested to go back to these sequels now though, Nick, because like I said, I think these are, this series is, it's a different genre every time around and I really am looking forward to Jaws 2 because it's always been one of my favorite sequels. Like when people ask me a good sequel, I'll say, well, you know, it's hard to ever find one that's as good as the original, but like Halloween 2 and Jaws 2 have always been my go-tos for part twos that I felt like held up and so uh we'll 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 talk about that uh next yeah, time.
1: I don't know man. I you know my <laughs> thoughts on Halloween too. So yeah. yeah. I, I,
0: so well but I'm but I'm the guy I'll remind people. I'm the guy that told you Friday the 13th part 2 was better than part 1 because I think it is. So
1: Oh, I, I believe that because I think the first one's just a piece of junk. But.
0: <laughs> yeah, So, but anyway, we'll get into that more next time. Of course, folks, you can find all of our episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Hook up with us there. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We appreciate your support. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes, of course. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The film strip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.